Hey everyone, welcome to the Austin Steve Experiment. I'm your host, Steve Sales. Got a few things to talk about. Obviously, great Super Bowl win by the Patriots that I would love to talk about for forever, but I will shorten it to 15-20 minutes. Um, also going to talk about the Kristaps trade, maybe some other things in the NBA, which I'm going to rant about for a little bit because that really annoyed me. Um, my birthday was on uh, this weekend, so I'm 18 now. I got this uh, new microphone for my birthday, so I've got a nice little setup here, and hopefully the audio quality is a little bit better, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy the episode. Okay, so, Super Bowl. Um, obviously, I, I was pretty excited. Um, the, ga- the game kind of sucked. I... I got a lot of crap from people today about how terrible the game was and everything. And, you know, it was, it was a slog, but I think for, for Patriots and Rams fans, it was really nice to appreciate the, the chess match that was going on between uh, Belichick and Wade Phillips. I mean, obviously the Belichick crafted a, not perfect, but a, a really, really good defensive game plan. It was obviously one of the best defensive performances we've seen in the Super Bowl in a really long time. I mean, Patriots defense just dominated everybody from start to finish. And it was, it was exhilarating to watch, even if, the offense didn't score as much as uh, one would have wanted them to. So I'm going to start with the uh, the Patriots defense against the Rams offense. And obviously it was pretty clear that Goff was a little shaken from the start of the game. Um, the Patriots were blitzing almost half of their snaps and they were getting a lot of pressure with that. Dante Hightower was a monster off of the edge and over the middle. And he was just kind of terrifying Goff all night. And they got the four sacks and I mean, they just continued to get pressure and Goff just wasn't able to make those throws when he was scared he was going to get killed. Um, and the secondary was pretty good too. I mean, uh, I think that the yardage is not going to look great from like the pure coverage stats, but obviously Gilmore played pretty well at the end of the game when they needed it most. Uh, Jason McCourty with that awesome pass breakup at the end of the game. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just really solid all around. It sucked that Patrick Chung broke his arm and his arm like turned to rubber in the middle of those two guys right in the, well, I think it was the second quarter or something. But Deron Harmon came in. I mean, Deron Harmon plays a lot anyways, but he played more than he typically does, and he did played very well. And it was a really cool thing. And it was also interesting to see them play a lot of zone and use it so effectively because they'd been they used man the most all season, and they had the corners to kind of deal with that. I mean, J.C. Jackson is a really young cornerback, so you can't play a ton of zone with him just because there might be some communication errors and things. And Stephon Gilmore is arguably the best lockdown cornerback in the NFL right now, if you get him on one guy the whole game. But they changed it up this uh, this week. They went to zone. Kind of had a, They had uh, McCourty or Jonathan Jones uh, converted to safety over the top to kind of make sure that Cooks or uh, Robert Woods didn't really burn him. Um, and they didn't get taken advantage of with uh, Gurley, which I w- I'm going to talk about Gurley for a little bit again, which it, it's – his usage has been concerning over the last two weeks. I mean, he really didn't play at all in the Saints game. And then he got 11 touches and two targets in the whole Super Bowl, which really didn't make a ton of sense because they had C.J. Anderson go out in pass routes a few different times, which clearly showed that they did maybe want to have their running backs involved in the passing game. But if you're going to do that, why would you have C.J. Anderson being the one catch ball, catching the ball instead of Todd Gurley, who is arguably the best running back in the NFL, who, again you paid more money than any running back has ever received in NFL history to do so. So I have to imagine either he was hurt and he wasn't telling the Rams about it, or he was hurt and they just didn't want to talk about it for some reason and just make it look like they were benching him, which again, it's just, 
so so bizarre. And I don't I don't think they would have won the game if they used Gurley more because they were still shutting down C.J. Anderson anyways. But it, it, it's a really weird situation. I don't know if Sean McVay just outthought himself like Bill Belichick did with Malcolm Butler last year. But obviously, it's really not a good look for the Rams. And you got to hope that it's not something that's going to linger because otherwise, that contract is going to look really bad. Um, and I'm going to get to that later. But the way the Rams team is currently constructed, they need all the cap space they can get. So if Gurley is not going to be worth that, that's that's going to be a big issue for them. So I also do want to. I don't want this game to be an indictment on Sean McVay and Jared Goff. Like it's, it's. I've seen a few people online talking about how like this invalidates everything that they've done this season, which I don't think is really fair to them because I mean they beat the Cowboys and the Saints and they beat them pretty solid. I mean. They didn't beat the Saints solidly, but I mean, they beat the Saints, which is still an accomplishment. Regardless of that call, they still had it close in the end. And I think that's really what counts there. Um, And they just look, I mean, Bill Belichick, when you give him two weeks to come up with a game plan to confuse a young quarterback, he is going to win that matchup nine times out of 10. I just going up against the greatest coach of all time in a chess match that big. I don't think that Sean McVay is suddenly not the most innovative offensive coach in the league right now just because he had one bad game and it was the worst game they've had. Like it just, it just so happened they had the worst game that Sean McVay's had against the greatest coach ever in the biggest stage ever. That's just, it's going to happen sometimes. I mean, and I think they're going to be able to change some stuff up next year. I'll I'll get to that later, actually, when I talk about the Rams big picture stuff. Um, And so the Patriots offense against the Rams defense, um, I think that their offense played a little bit better than people will give them credit for. I mean, they, they missed the field goal, so 16 points isn't that much more than three points. Same thing with Rams. Six points wouldn't have been that much more than three points. But they had um, they had over 400 yards. They really just they weren't doing all that well on third down. I think they were like two for 11 at one point. And Johnny Hacker was awesome. He was pinning them in like their 20-yard line the whole game. So they would have had to make all these crazy – long drives like they had against the chiefs. And that's just not something you can sustain all the time. So I think the, the yardage shows they were still doing stuff. Sony Michelle was killing them. I think he had over five yards of carry. Um, Brady wasn't particularly accurate to anybody other than Gronk and Edelman. But I mean, when he was throwing to Gronk and Edelman, I think he missed three passes and had over 200 yards. He had virtually all of his yardage against uh, or throwing to Edelman and Gronk. Edelman obviously was just money from the start. They had, Akeem Tlaib in on the slot with him a few couple times, and clearly Tlaib just couldn't catch up. Edelman was just torching him, and then Nikel Roby Coleman came out and was guarding him, and Edelman torched him too. They had a Edelman had on average three point nine yards of separation, which is huge considering that when you are covered in tight man to man coverage by cornerback, you have less than one yard of separation, and he was averaging almost four times that just like poor per route run. So a really impressive performance by Edelman. He's obviously, he elevates his game in the postseason and it shows, I mean, he's, he was, he's been great this whole year. This is the best season he's ever had. And it's obviously the PEDs, whatever, but I mean, the production is a production. He deserved the MVP and he's been fantastic. I had a quick tangent. I'm going to talk about the, this weird thing on Twitter is talking about how Edelman needs to be a hall of famer. And it's a terrible argument, in my opinion, because obviously he's one of the best Patriots performance. He's arguably the best Patriots receiver of all time when you take in longevity and how many postseason runs he's been in for them. But 
the regular se- the regular season has to matter in the playoffs. I, like he has the second most receptions and yards all time in the playoffs, which is great. Obviously, he's been fantastic when he's played in the playoffs. But the regular season has to matter. And when it comes down to it, he doesn't have a single all pro or pro bowl. And he only has 5,000 career uh, receiving yards. He's a great player. Like I love watching Julian Edelman play football, but you can't be a hall of famer when your regular season stats really aren't that great. But that's just my two cents. I'd be willing to, here's another side of that, but I just think the regular season matters too much for that to happen. Uh, Anyways, so Edelman was great. Gronk was awesome. Um, it, he really found a stride these last few weeks here. They they weren't having him out to catch all the time, but when they did, they was it was always pretty important. They just they had him in as a blocker for the most part, and he's been mauling people in the, the running game all season, clearing a lot of lanes. And then in the passing game, they just got him doing what he can do. I mean, he he can't really separate from people anymore like he used to be able to. But I mean, if you match him up with a linebacker, he's still going to be able to beat you, like he did on the. The drive, the touchdown drive that iced the game. He had the the catch over, I think it was Ubakum, and it was a perfect throw by Brady, perfect catch by Gronk. And then on the 29-yard play that got them into the red zone, Gronk just beat his man, and then there was another dude coming up behind him. Brady just threw it right where Gronk wanted it and got the catch. And, I mean, he's made plays like that his whole career. And so it was nice to see him go out on top. Um and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be bittersweet because I I would imagine he retires. Um, which is going to suck because he's, he's one of the most entertaining players that I've ever watched. I, he's the only player like consistently every time he scored a touchdown, I would freak out and be excited about because he was just, he's a blast to watch. And I, I think he's the greatest tight end of all time. Um, he's going to be a first ballot hall of famer. It's going to suck seeing him gone. Um, but it was fun while it lasted. I'm glad he could go out on a high note. Um, let's talk about the Rams defense. Like I said, I mean, Akib Talib really wasn't doing all that well. Marcus Peters completely blanketed Chris Hogan, which was really not terribly surprising just because Chris Hogan really has kind of lost a lot of speed too. And Peters is a talented quarterback. I think Brady was over six with that bad pick to, um, when he was throwing to Hogan and I, Peters was a big part of that. They, they took away uh, James White a lot, too, which was really impressive because obviously James White in the postseason has been something teams have been terrified of in the past. And, I mean, the Patriots didn't use him a ton just because they didn't really need him because um, they were more just throwing it right over the middle of the field, Edelman and Gronk. But, um, I mean, they had their their linebackers did a pretty good job of containing him and not really make, letting him do anything when he was out there. Um, yeah. Um, the, the biggest problem for them really was that the defensive line just got dominated by the Patriots offensive line. I mean, Donald had one pressure and then I, th- I, he was the one who had the sack, I believe on Brady when Brady just held the ball for way too long. And Sue had that one really, really nice, uh, run stuff where he just blew up, uh, Michelle, I believe it was, but he didn't really do anything either. I mean, the Patriots offensive line has just been unconscious the last three weeks and Frankly, they, they could have won MVP of that game, and I would not have cared in the slightest. Because, um, I mean, they were a big part of that. Like, Brady was getting rid of the ball relatively quickly, and I mean, part in, but that offensive line gave him enough time to throw when it mattered most. Um, and that really helped, obviously, because Brady wasn't his sharpest. There were obviously the, he started out pretty rough. I think he was a little confused as to what was man and zone, because the Rams were switching that up pretty well in the beginning. But he kind of settled in, and obviously those last three drives, when he when they needed him the most, he was perfect. I think he was four for five in the fourth quarter. So 
it's a, a similar theme this whole season is he may not be the dominant level that he was from 2015 to 2017, but when you need him most, he's going to make all, virtually no mistakes. Um, so that's, I think that's all I've got for the Patriots offense. I think, um, yeah, Gronk did really well. Edelman did really well. Offensive line did really well. Brady struggled, but did what he needed the most. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Rams now, just in context. It's tough. It sucks for the Rams. I mean, they they clearly went all in. They traded away so many picks to get all these guys. They had Sue for one year at fourteen million, um, and it, it's going to be kind of tough for them to replicate this. I think now, like I said, the Sean McVay and Jared Goff are not the problems. Like Jared Goff needs a little more time to develop, and he has things he needs to work on. Like he needs to become more of an anticipation thrower, and he needs to work better under pressure. But he's a third-year quarterback who was still able to lead his team to a Super Bowl. That's not really what I'm concerned about. And again, Sean McVay. Sean McVay has been amazing this year. And just because he he finally had a bad game where it feels like it's the first time his team didn't score 30 points doesn't mean that he's suddenly terrible. I mean, I do think that eventually the way they were playing was going to catch up to them because uh, I think they, they ran 96% of their plays in 11 personnel, which is uh, three wide receivers, one tight end, one running back. Uh, for those of you that don't know, and it's they were really effective with it, but eventually you're kind of running pretty similar plays, and people will be able to key in on that. And that's not really an indictment on Sean McVay, because I mean that's that's not all he's ever done when he's called plays and everything. But it's more just because of the personnel they have. They really only had for most of the season Gurley as their only reliable running back, and they um, they didn't really have a tight end that can consistently get stuff. Gerald Everett is a pretty athletic guy, but he hasn't developed in that role yet. So they really can't consistently count on one tight end, nevertheless two. And it's a kind of a contrast between the Patriots and <coughs> what they were doing. I mean, that touchdown drive, they had their, they had James Devlin, their fullback in there with their running back and Gronk, and they were able to throw out of heavy and that worked for them. But the Rams just really haven't had the personnel to do anything other than just have their three receivers out there. Um, so again, I think that will be fine, but the, the roster construction is going to be tough because next year is really the last year they're ever going to have Goff on a cost controlled deal. I think he'll be seven or 8 million against the cap. And then the balloons to 20 million is fifth year. And then after that, they're potentially giving him a deal north of 30 million a year. Um, and that's a lot of money and they've already, their future is tied up in a core of Gurley, Donald and Goff and Brandon Cooks right now. Brandon Cooks' salary cap hit, I think, is $27.5 million next year. And Aaron Donald's the second highest paid uh, defender in football. And Todd Gurley's the highest paid running back that's ever existed. So it's going to be a lot harder for them to fill up these spots that they had with Adamic and Sue and everything when they don't have just straight cash to offer kids anymore. So <coughs> it's going to be on less need to really um, make sure that he can nail the draft with uh, getting quality young talent on a cost controlled deal. And I mean, it's a lot easier said than done. I mean, Belichick, Belichick's really the only guy who's consistently worked around uh, finding value and everything. And so it's going to be a lot harder. I think they'll still be pretty successful over the next few years, but I don't think it's any guarantee at all that they can just get back to the Super Bowl next year. Like it's nothing. Um, in the ter- in terms of the historical context with the Patriots, this game really didn't matter that much. I mean, Brady was going to be the goat regardless. Belichick was going to be the goat regardless. It was, and they made the Super Bowl. Like people are going to talk about how they, it was a weird season because I mean, they lost to those five non-playoff teams and, but they beat all of the playoff teams. And it, it was just so bizarre because 
people can talk about again the easy division and everything and whatnot. But in the when it comes down to it, they played the number one, two, and three teams in DVOA four times. They beat the Chiefs twice. They beat the um, the Rams once, and the oh god, who was the the last team? Um, the Chargers, and they beat the Chargers, who were number three in DVOA. So they had you can talk about an easy schedule or whatever, but when it came down to it, they beat the best teams. And even if they were only by one score, when you do that four times, I think that counts for something or no, they weren't by one score for the Rams and the chargers games, but, and the, <clears throat> it was, it was interesting. It's the, the defense really, they really owed Brady a super bowl after Brady threw for 500 yards and lost because his team gave up 41. And then he had a, a below average game and the defense won him one. So, this really doesn't change anything in the bigger picture for the Patriots because what's the difference between six Super Bowls and five Super Bowls? I think it, it'd be interesting to see where this team would rank among those six teams simply because I don't, they really didn't have a ton of talent, but by the time the playoffs came around, they were just they were just rolling and they were doing everything perfectly that they needed to do. So I guess that's a conversation for people to have. Um, but yeah, like I said, nothing really new for the Patriots here. So I'm going to take a quick break. You'll hear a word from our sponsors, and then I'm going to talk about the Kristaps Porzingis trade. Now, I said earlier that this trade made me mad, and it was only because uh, last week when Austin and I did our Super Bowl preview and the Anthony Davis trade and everything, we did that. We did that podcast, and that was I think 40 minutes, something like that. And so I drove home, and I got to my house, whatever, and I just went on Twitter just because. And I kid you not, the Kristaps trade dropped five minutes after I got back to my house. And it, oh God, I was, I was so mad because I really I, I had a lot of thoughts on the trade and I couldn't really talk about anything until I made another episode. Um, but I get to talk about it now, so it's great. Um, my initial reaction to this trade was the trade was t- I hated the trade when it got announced because they didn't talk about Dallas's two first round picks that were one of them being unprotected when the deal was first announced. And at first I was just thinking, Nick's what do you like? They're just banking on something that might never even happen. But the, the more I've thought about it, uh, I don't hate it as much. I'm still not in love with it, but I, I kind I can understand what they were trying to do. So basically the trade was Christoph Porzingis, uh, Dumping Courtney, dumping Courtney Lee's contract, dumping Tim Hardaway Jr.'s contract, in addition to getting two first-round picks and Dennis Smith Jr. And that those are like the main consequences of the deal. So what the Knicks are basically doing here is they were um, they were going to try and get rid of Tim Hardaway Jr. or Courtney Lee's deals anyways. Like that's just something they were going to try to do because they want that max space. They want to get someone like a KD or a Kyrie over there. And that was probably going to take them a first round pick to do that. Even if Courtney Lee can still be a serviceable, serviceable catch and shoot guy. So I guess what they thought was, all right, let's see if we can try and get some picks back while giving up the first, but we're probably also going to have to give up Kristaps, which by doing so, they basically, they have two max spaces now. So they were either going to have Kristaps Porzingis and one max caps slot, or they were going to have no Kristaps and two max slots. Which, again, I hated at first because without those picks, it basically just sounded like a salary dump. Which, I, yeah. I mean, the, the, my thought process now has been, 
the Knicks must have some knowledge of KD saying, I'm going to come to New York this summer because I just, I don't know why you would get rid of your best player just for the, the, the chance that he might come over there, even though last time he didn't even take a meeting with you. So I think there, there must be some kind of like wink, wink tampering agreement going on right now. Otherwise it's just too risky a move because you don't even know if you're going to get the number one pick and the way you've been run the last decade did multiple decades. There's really no guarantee that anyone would come play for you in the first place. Um, so I, and the Dallas picks theoretically aren't going to be that great. I mean, we don't know how good the Luca and, um, we don't know how great the Luca and Kristaps fit would be, but you'd have to imagine that they will be at least average over the next few years. So I I'd say the picks aren't going to amount to anything more than like the 15th or 16th pick. So again, it's, it's not the best trade, but if they really think that they're going to get Katie and somebody else, then I, I can understand what the thought process is, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. Now on the Mavs side, I do kind of like this trade. Um, you get a guy with Chris Ops who has obviously been hurt all the time, and it's really kind of concerning. But the thought is that he won't have to carry as much of the load because Luke is already there to kind of take care of things and provide him with some better looks that he doesn't have to work as hard for. And giving up the two picks sucks. But at the same time, if you really think that Chris Ops is your guy and you're going to give him a max contract, which they'll offer him and he should take, then those two picks theoretically are going to be middling picks anyways, and they might not matter in the grand scheme of things. And so they're stuck with Courtney Lee and Tim Hardaway Jr.'s contracts, which really aren't that great, but it's not like they aren't serviceable players in their own right. I mean, Courtney Lee, like I said, he's still a pretty good shooter, and Tim Hardaway Jr. is on a team where he does not have to be the number one guy. He can he can be all right. I mean, he's had pretty good nights where he's just, he's caught fire and he can score in bunches. And if he doesn't think that he has to make all of these shots himself, I think that he can be a lot more efficient and help more towards winning basketball than he ever did in New York. Um, Kristaps, I believe at one point was talking about how he was going to take the qualifying offer this year, which is basically when you're in restricted free agency, you can take the qualifying offer, which is one year for significantly less than what teams would normally give you. But then after that, you go into unrestricted free agency. Whereas um, what teams normally do is they'll just give you a contract and then teams can try and match it. And that's what restricted free agency is about. I don't think he's actually going to do that. I think that was more just a bluff. And the Mavs were like, okay, dude, whatever. We're just going to give you this money and you're going to take it. Because people just don't turn down a hundred something million dollars. Like you just don't. So I think that Kristaps is going to be there for a long time. And I think if he stays healthy, I think the fit could be good. I mean, he's... He's a center made for this era. As long as he can stay healthy, I think he'd be a good fit. He He's a lot better for them than DeAndre Jordan ever was. I mean, DeAndre Jordan's complete lack of effort really anywhere on the floor has been astounding this year, and I think Kristaps would be a nice change of pace and a nice foil for Luka. I mean, a Luka Kristaps pick and roll would be pretty hard to stop. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of upside for the Mavs in this trade. It kind of locks them in to this team just because there's so much money on that Tim Hardaway contract and the Courtney Lee contracts, it's going to be hard for them to really add anything else outside of this other than maybe Harrison Barnes leaving. And that'll free up a little bit of space for him, but it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. I don't know if Kristaps is going to come back this year. I think he's the way he's been kind of talking in the media lately. It sounds like he might be ready, but 
I don't know. I, I I think I'd prefer to get him a few weeks in at the end of the season just to kind of get a taste of like what he could potentially do in Carlisle's system. But at the same time, if he's really not ready, you don't want to get him hurt even more. And then you traded for a dude who got hurt and would barely ever play for you. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how this pans out and how the rest of the trade deadline pans out. I believe the, the deadline is, uh, I think, over the next few days. And we'll Austin and I will cover everything that comes out. And it's, it's going to be a really fun trade deadline, I think, with a lot of crazy stuff happening. And I'm really looking forward to it. So I'm going to take another quick break, and then we're going to wrap things up. Thanks for listening, guys. It's, uh, it's been a, a really wild NFL season, especially for me, obviously, being a Patriots fan. But I've had a ton of fun covering it this first year doing this podcast. I've really enjoyed. And obviously, I'm not going to stop. We're going to have free agency in the draft and everything to do. But um, obviously, the, the NFL stuff is going to slow down a lot from here. But we're still going to have basketball, and maybe we'll get into some college sports and everything. And we're still going to have a ton of stuff to talk about. But just wanted to thank you guys for listening to all this NFL stuff. I've had a ton of fun doing it. Um, just general reminder, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, and every other place you can find a podcast. Uh, feel free to leave a review, like, uh, tell your friends about it. And thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you next time.